Awesome. Well, today I would love to wrap up the series we've been working our way through uh, called Crash. We've been talking about relationships and conflict and how do we navigate that as followers of Jesus. Um, if you're in the dating world today, I'm guessing that you're familiar with the term ghosting. Anybody know what that term means, ghosting? Have you heard, have you heard this term? Okay, at 9.30, a lot more people were uh, aware of this, I guess. How many of you would keep your hand up if you would be honest enough to say, yeah, I've been ghosted. It's actually happened to me. Have you, have you ever been ghosted? It's okay if, if you have been. In my dating years, I think I was rejected by women in every single possible way and category you could be. Um, for those of you who don't know what ghosting is, essentially ghosting is when two people are having a text message conversation and one person just stops showing up for the conversation. <laughs> they just disappear like a ghost. And so, you know, it's kind of like this uh, right here. So forget, you know, the old days where we had these common courtesies that would allow us to actually have to say farewell to someone. Nowadays, if you don't like someone or the date didn't go very well or whatever, you just ghost them. You just stop responding. And so they're, they're left trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, Chip Cutter wrote an article recently for LinkedIn. And what he said in this article was that ghosting has now made its way into the workplace. So companies and employers are now having to try to figure out how to deal with ghosting that's happening where job candidates will sign up for an interview and then they'll just not show up. And the interviewer is texting them and, and they've been ghosted. Or someone will actually take a job only to fail to show up on the first day of work and their new employer is like, hey, I thought you knew today was the first day. And they just get ghosted. There's no responses back at all. There's even a huge rise in people um, walking out instead of like giving their two weeks notice and actually having a face-to-face -face conversation with their boss and saying, hey, this just isn't working out or I took a new job. They just get up and walk out the door one day and then nobody can get a hold of them. They're just ghosted. The company is just ghosted or whatever. And that's happening more and more in our world. Why is this? Why is that happening? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. We've never really been great in our culture at tough conversations, right? We avoid them like the plague. We run from tough conversations. Uh, but yet, you know, in the past, there was always sort of this, this cultural courtesy where you, you kind of had to, to say something to somebody. But now in the digital age that we live in, it's less and less uh, a need for us to actually interact in the, with these things in a way that we have tough conversations. So here's what I believe. I bet you every single person in this room right now has at least one tough conversation that you need to have. It's lurking somewhere. Maybe it's with your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's with your boss. Maybe it's a tough conversation with somebody, a friend or, or somebody that you work with. But I, but I bet you every single person has at least one tough conversation they need to have. I think my quota is about one a week. Seriously, I think it's about once a week that I have a tough conversation and I'm just dreading like, oh man, I gotta do this. But, but here's the thing about tough conversations. If we do them, if we don't run from them, if we do them and they actually go well, when they go well, it actually changes the atmosphere. Everything gets better. The environment in our home gets better. Everything gets better when we actually have tough conversations and have them well. So if you've been with us throughout this series, you know we're, we're talking about conflict and we're looking at um, what does the Bible have to say? What does uh, God's word have to say to us about conflict? And so we talked a couple weeks ago about the place you have to start with conflict is you have to begin by asking before advocating. You have to begin with listening, seeking first to understand before advocating for your own position and, and trying to be understood. 
So we talked about that. Then last week, John Gorvet, our Center Church campus pastor, was here, and he talked uh, with you guys about what does it mean to resist gossip and slander and those kind of things that tear apart at the fabric of our relationships. Today, I want to talk about how do you speak? How do you actually use your words to have a tough conversation? Um, how do you do that? Because taking the time, at some point, if you're going to resolve conflict, you have to look at your words, how you're speaking. And taking the time to craft your words carefully actually communicates that you care about the other person and that you value them. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. From a scriptural standpoint, God is the curator of words. In fact, in scripture, the, the Bible opens in the book of Genesis and God is the one who speaks the first words. And in fact, all the creation, the heavens and the earth, everything that we see was brought into being by God speaking them into being. He speaks with his words and his words are what make creation happen. Everything is formed by his words. Satan comes along and he twists God's words to Eve. And that's where we find the first sin happening. Satan actually doesn't say anything new. He doesn't have anything creative or original to say. He just takes God's words, if you read the text, and he twists them. And that's what leads to Eve you know, falling into this temptation and believing this lie. And if you go forward in the Bible, you get to Moses. And when Moses brought the law and the Ten Commandments that God gave him, the, the Israelites, they understood and they would call the law the very words of God. That's what they believed. They believed the law was the very words of God for them in their lives. And if you go forward even from there, you get to the Gospels. And Jesus, the writer John in the Gospel of John says that, that Jesus, the way he came into and the way he begins his, his gospel is that Jesus was God's words become flesh. That in the incarnation, that's what Jesus is. He's the actual very words of God, the same words that spoke the creation into being, the ultimate source of truth in, on, in the entire cosmos became flesh. And in Jesus, we see what it means for God's words to actually take on flesh and blood and live among us. So, so we have to begin this morning with this recognition that our words are powerful and our words are sacred. They're spiritual. And at some point, we have to understand growing spiritually, becoming more mature in Christ, being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, at some point means we have to look at our words. We have to look at the way our words are shaped and the way that we speak has something to do with our our actual relationship with God and what it means to become mature as followers of Christ. The biggest lie that your mother ever told you was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was a lie that your mom told you. Moms, if you're here today, that's a lie if you've told it to your kids. I love you, but that's the way it is. Some of the deepest wounds that we carry in our lives are from words. Words that people spoke to us. Maybe it was a coach uh, maybe it was a parent or, or a teacher. But some of the deepest wounds that we, that we still carry, even as adults, have to do with words that were spoken to us. Our words have power. Our words have weight. And so we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, at chapter 4 specifically. And Paul is the writer. He's writing to the church in Ephesus there. And he's talking about, it, now that you know Christ, now that you've been put together by the gospel, this is what it means to actually be the church and to live as followers of Christ. And he recognizes the power of words. Ephesians 4, verse 29, he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And I would add, or out of your keyboards, 
or out of your iPhones or out of your social media accounts. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your devices, including your mouths, but only, only, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may actually benefit those who listen. It's recognizing the power our words have. He goes on to say, when the church is working the way the church is supposed to be, and as people are, are being built up in Christ, as people are being forgiven and redeemed and put back together by Jesus, and as they're coming together as the community, what happens is we, be, we start to become more and more mature in Christ. We become more and more like Jesus when it comes to our words and the way we talk. Verse 14, he says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. That's what Satan did in Genesis with Eve. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. I think we just need to say that out loud together. Let's say that phrase. We will what? Speak the truth in love. What are we going to do? We're going to speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. So what it's saying there, Paul is saying is, as we grow more and more like Jesus, as we become more like Christ, who is the head of the church, as followers of Jesus, we, we begin to become more like Jesus. And what did Jesus do in his communication? He had this ability to speak the truth in love. You see that all throughout the gospels. Jesus had this ability to speak the truth in love. In fact, the gospel writer John, after he says that Jesus was God's words became flesh and lived among us, he said that Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. He was full of grace, but he also didn't shy away from the truth, grace and truth. And the way Jesus spoke was he spoke truth, but he somehow had the ability to speak it in love. And so what we're wrestling with as we become mature is how do we do that? How do we actually speak the truth and love. What does that mean? What's interesting is it's really, really easy to sound loving if you never speak the truth, right? It's really, really easy to seem really loving and accepting and wonderful as long as you just never deal with the truth. And at the same time, on the other side of that, it's really, really easy to speak the truth and stand up for the truth if you just don't care about actually loving people in the context of real relationships, Doing both of those things at the same time, to me, honestly, it's the hardest thing I do. It's the most difficult thing I do in my life. That, that is such a thin line to walk of speaking the truth, but also speaking it in love. It's such a difficult thing to do, uh, but that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do and exactly what he did. And I believe it's exactly what, when we ask him, he will give us by the power of his Holy Spirit, the ability to do if you have a tough conversation coming, if you know it's ahead and you say, God, I really want to be able to speak the truth in love. I want to be able to walk that line and do that well. He'll, he'll give you the words. He'll speak into that with you if you seek him for that. So, but how do we do that? How do we speak the truth in love? How do we walk that difficult line and actually do both of those things that we're really called to do as followers of Jesus? Oftentimes we think about this as it relates to our home, right? The people who are immediate in our lives, our family, our, our immediate friendships. And absolutely, we need to learn how to speak the truth and love to those people in, in those contexts. But if I could, I'd like to 
widen our lens a little bit, uh, pull our, our magnifying glass back and think in a, a little bit bigger angle. And I'd love to even ask the question, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to speak the truth in love when it comes to the biggest conflict issues of our day? I know if you're anything like me, November 6th is coming up and this new round of elections uh, is going to be happening in our country. And I've noticed over the last couple weeks the building vitriol on social media and Facebook just beginning to climb up again. How do we speak the truth in love when it comes to some of the biggest conflict issues of our day? As the church, as followers of Jesus, who are genuinely trying to, to do that, how do we do that? For instance, I mean, you know, uh, we, we live in a country where a few years ago, uh, gay marriage became legalized. How do you speak the truth in love, in relationships to people in our church and outside of our church? How, how do we do that? How do we say, on, on one hand, you are loved by God exactly the way, you are accepted. There is nothing you need to change about your life or do differently to be loved by God. There's nothing on your own merit you could do to be loved one more ounce for, or one more bit from him. And you are welcome. You are accepted here. And yet, at the same time, say the truth is, though, the only form of marriage the Bible condones and that Jesus himself condones in Matthew chapter 19 is one man and one woman. That's it. How do you speak the truth in love? Or abortion, that's always a big hot button issue. How do you say on one hand, as a church, as followers of Jesus, we care about, we have great compassion for, and as a church, we feel called by God to, to interact with and to take care of victims of poverty, and victims of rape, victims of incest. And there are people, by the way, in our church right now who are dealing with those things. And yet at the same time say, but we believe that taking the life of an unborn child is wrong. How do you speak the truth in love? Or even the issue of racial equality. This past week, some of you maybe were aware there were two black people shot in a Kroger in Kentucky and all these racial things going on with that shooting and with what happened. And, and um, I've got friends who are on social media speaking out on both sides of that. How do, we, how, how do we say in a world, how do we speak to the truth and love to a room full of mostly white people here who have never intentionally oppressed a person of color, who have never like with malice of forethought tried to intentionally oppress a person of color, how do you speak the truth that there are still systemic ways that oppression happens every single day and we oftentimes as white folks don't see it? It goes right over our heads. How do you speak the truth in love when it comes to these issues? How do you do that? My belief, my friends, is that we, as mature followers of Christ, we are ghosting when it comes to those issues today in our society. We're ghosting. We're disappearing from the conversation in our society. So it happens like this. It's, it's the person at work who makes this joke, and everybody laughs at it. And so you laugh along because, man, speaking the truth in love right now and, and getting it is just going to be so awkward and make things so uncomfortable right now. Or it's the friend whose teenage son or daughter comes out as gay. And we hear about it, we know about it, but we just sort of ignore it. We just don't, ah, I'm just not going to deal with that or talk about that at all. 
It'd just be easy to sort of erase that out of the context of our relationship. And so what happens is we ghost, we step away from these issues as mature followers. And so what happens in our world is only either the most hateful voices or the most morally ambiguous voices get heard, right? Because it's easy to sound loving if you never speak truth. And hey, it's okay. There's, there's no such thing as morals. There's no such thing as right or wrong. And it's also really hard or it's really easy to speak the truth if you don't actually care about the context of living in loving relationships with real people. How do you do it? How do you speak the truth in love? So here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to just take um, this uh, idea and this passage and I just want to talk about a few things to keep in mind as we seek to speak the truth in love. A couple things to keep in mind as we seek to speak the truth in love. How do we do that? Um, So first one, here you go. I think we always recognize, man, these are important issues. And it's good to recognize that. All those issues I just mentioned, people in our world, people in our church are dealing with, those are important issues. And there are truth dimensions to those issues, but there's there's something even more important than the issues. And that's that these are important people. We forget that, don't we? In fact, the only reason these issues matter to us in our world is because of how they affect people. That's really it. And what you see in scripture is that people always matter more than issues. That Jesus elevates people and how issues affect people. What it means to speak the truth in love is this. Oftentimes what happens is we we become uh, really passionate about sharing our views on the issues. But what happens is we've kind of disconnected our views on the issues from the context of actual, real, loving relationships with people who are affected by those issues. So hear what I'm saying. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you can't have views on the issues. I do. I have all kinds of views on all kinds of issues. It's not, you can have your views on the issues. My, the point is, don't divorce your views from actual loving relationship, the context of loving relationships. The gospel was meant to be lived out in the context of real face-to-face relationships. That's, that's always the context of the gospel. That's always the way the church uh, moved and influenced the society was in the context of actual relationships. In John 13, 35, Jesus is instructing his disciples and he says, the world will know you are my disciples because of your, your opinions on the issues, right? <laughs> the world will know you are my disciples because you were right about those opinions and those issues. That's how they'll all know. no. The world will know you are my disciples because of your love. It'll just be clear. It'll be so obvious to spot a Christian, a follower of Jesus, because of their love. So these are important people. Let your views be influenced, or let your views be informed, or let your views be expressed even in the context of actual loving relationships. This is what it means to speak the truth in love. It's always in the context of loving relationships. Next, and this one I just feel like I have to say, don't say anything with your keyboard that you wouldn't say with your mouth directly in person. Is that just a good rule of thumb to live by? Is that, can we just say that? I have been amazed um, as I've looked at social media, some of the posts and things I've seen from Christians, from people I know well, in fact, from followers of Jesus that I would say I respect I respect them. I respect their views on the issue. I respect even just them as their relationship with God. And they will post something and I will think to myself, I know that person well enough. I know their heart well enough. 
I know that they would never think that was okay to say that that way if they were sitting at a coffee shop directly across looking someone in the eye who is affected by that issue. I know that there would be something in them that would be like, I, I shouldn't say it that way. They would know not to do that. But there is something that happens in our world. There's something that's happened in our culture. We've got this distance, this separation behind a screen and behind a keyboard. Where I don't, I'm not even sure what we think, but we think somehow that it's okay to say things and do things that we would never dream of doing. We would just know inherently, oh, that's just not truth and love right there as followers of Jesus. So don't, good rule of thumb, don't say anything with your keyboard you wouldn't say with your mouth directly in person. And the last one, is this, this is a huge, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's good to, to remind ourselves. There is a difference between acceptance and affirmation. That is such a huge thing that we just don't get, we don't understand. There, there is a huge difference between acceptance and affirmation. On one side of these issues in our, our world, you have a group of people who basically say, there's no way that you can accept a person into your relational world, into a friendship or into a relational context without affirming their life of choices. Like by accepting someone, you must be by default affirming their life choices. On the other side of that same ish, that same coin, you've got a group of people who basically say, unless you're willing to affirm all of my life choices, there's no way you could tell me you're accepting me. Unless you affirm me, unless you affirm everything I've decided to do, don't tell me that you accept me and that you love me and God loves me. Listen to me. (laughs) Jesus never had a problem distinguishing those things. He just never had a fear that somehow by accepting, he was also affirming or that he had to affirm in order to accept. He just never wrestled with that. In fact, in the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus had so many friends and people who he ate with and spent time with who were sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and the sexually immoral and the greedy and all. These people actually, Luke 15 talks about how they would flock to be around him. There's something about Jesus that broken people wanted to be around, and yet he does not affirm their life choices. He doesn't let them off the hook when it comes to truth at any point. In fact, Jesus got to the point where he had so many friends that were sinners and tax collectors and and prostitutes that he eventually developed a uh, nickname. There was a nickname that the religious folks of his day started calling him. You know what it was? Friend of sinners. That's what they called him. And he wore that title like a badge of honor. Friend of sinners. Listen, here's all I'm trying to say to to those of us who are followers of Jesus. Until we develop the reputation as followers of Jesus of being far too chummy with sinfully broken people, we are not imitating Jesus yet. Our world right now calls Christians a whole lot of things. Friend of sinners ain't one of them. We're not being accused of that. And the gospel was always meant to be lived out in the context of real relationships. That's why Jesus came full of grace and truth. The very words of God, the very truth of God lived out in human flesh, in reality, in human relationships. And that's what it means to speak the truth in love. We forget, don't we? The Bible begins not with the very first human being searching for God. That's not the story. 
The Bible begins with God searching for the very first human beings and they're hiding in shame and in their sin. They're hiding from him as he walks in the cool of the day, he's looking for them. Then you move forward into the scriptures into the people of Israel. It's not a story in the, in the, the story of the people of Israel is not a story about a people who are looking for a God. It's a story about a God who comes to a guy named Abram and says, Abram, I'm gonna make you into a great nation because I'm looking for a people, looking for a people to bear my name to be blessed, to be my, a re- representation of me. Then you get to the Gospels. The story of Jesus, the story of, go- of the Gospels is not a story about a bunch of lost people looking for a savior. It's a story we're told very clearly by Luke about a savior who comes to seek and to save those who are lost. See, from the beginning of the Bible all the way through, the message again and again is about a God who's, who's trying to reach across a relational divide, reach across a relational brokenness. And it's God making the first move. Romans 5, 8, that while God demonstrated his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, still face down in the gutter, still a mess, you know, having our own vomit on us, that's when Jesus reached out to die for us. That's the message. That's the story all the way through. Jesus became a friend of sinners so that we could become children of God. That's the gospel message. We became children of God because he first was a friend to sinners. That's what we're called to. In Luke 22, Jesus is gathered with his disciples around a table in an upper room on the night before he went to the cross. And he says this to them, verse 19, he took some bread And gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So what's happened is from that night until now, for centuries, followers of Jesus have been doing this in remembrance of Jesus, exactly what he said. They've been taking these elements, a bread and a cup. And, and for us today, that we have these four stations around the room, and we have a cracker, which represents the body of Jesus, and we have this small cup of juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, And what we believe and what we celebrate, every time we celebrate communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that it was Jesus' sacrifice that made us whole. It was God's move first to reach out to us that healed us of our brokenness. It wasn't any merit of our own. It wasn't because we got all our opinions on the issues correct. It wasn't because we made the first move. It's because we find our healing, we find our redemption in the power of Jesus. And what he did, his sacrifice, his redemption. And oftentimes, um, when we talk about communion, when we celebrate communion as a church, oftentimes we talk about the bread and we talk about the juice. We talk about the elements and the symbolism of that. And that's important. We should. Every, every single time we should talk about that. But for our purposes this morning, I'd love to also draw our attention to the context of communion, to the context of those, past, those verses I just read. Jesus invites his disciples to sit down around a table. You know what's right before those verses in Luke 22? Right before those verses we just read in Luke 22, Judas decides to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows it. You know what's right after those verses in Luke 22? 
the disciples all get into this huge argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and who's going to be remembered as the greatest person. That's the context. And in the midst of that context, Jesus invites his disciples to sit down around a table where everyone is an equal. Judas is there. Simon the Zealot, who persecuted tax collectors, is sitting right there next to Matthew, the tax collector. And fishermen, who were some of the most abused people by the tax system of the day, are sitting right next to Matthew. Everybody's an equal. And what they're reminded by Jesus is it's not your differences. We all come to the table because of our same similar need. Every single one of us, at the core of our humanity, we all need the same thing. We're all hungry for the same thing as human beings. And we can only find it at the table that Jesus invites us to. We're all hungry for redemption, for forgiveness, for an understanding that our life is not just static, but it's headed somewhere. We have a future, we have a purpose in the kingdom of God. It's what we all are hungry for. It's what we all want. So here's what I'd love to do this morning is we're gonna, um, the band's gonna sing a song. And as they do, um, I'd love for you to move to the different communion stations. We have two on the sides right here and then we have two in the back of the room as well. And I want you to come to the table and I want you to even allow yourself to be in a spirit of reflection even as you come to the table. And I want you to take the elements, the cracker and the juice, and then come back to your seats. And after we sing, we'll take those elements together. I'll lead us in and we'll take those elements together. But let this just be a time where you where you prepare your own heart. As we sing, um, I want you to go ahead and move and take the, the elements. And as you come to the table, think about the fact that all of us come to the table. We all come the same way. We all come with the same need. And all of us finds what we need in Christ. So let's go and let's take the elements now.